Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. Welcome to Ageless by Rescue, the show where we deep dive into the intersection of science and cellular beauty and wellness, unraveling the transformative power of artificial intelligence in revolutionizing predictive healthcare is the topic of today. I'm Baha Etmanen, and in today's episode, we have the privilege of delving into the future of health with a true pioneer, Jim Keane. Jim is the CEO of Molecular U and a seasoned tech executive. He's always had a passion for innovative, consumer-oriented health and wellness digital experiences and is now at the forefront of AI's impact on healthcare. Today, he's here to share the remarkable fusion of technology and medicine, a fusion that has the potential not just to treat ailments, but to foresee and prevent them. Together, we explore how AI is paving the way for predictive healthcare, the ethical considerations it brings, and the collaborative approach that's key to fully harnessing its potential. Get ready for an eye-opening journey into AI and healthcare revolution with Jim Keane. Jim, I'm so delighted to have you on the show. It's absolutely an honor and pleasure, particularly as AI is so hot right now, particularly in the field of predictive medicine and wellness. I'm excited to be here as well, Bahar. And when I saw your invite came come in, I thought this is a fantastic opportunity. So I'm feeling great. Well, you know, you are a pioneer in this field. You're a tech head, so you're not a doctor, uh, but you've worked adjacent to the wellness and medical industry to develop uh, technology that supports um, the industry. And now with the um, introduction of AI merging quite seamlessly into um, the sector, there are so many applications. And, and that's what I'm here to explore today because the audience that's listening to this episode, uh, they're normal people. And they want to know how this will impact their wellness journey and how it will impact their parents uh, who may be, you know, uh, being diagnosed or uh, or suffering from ill health, how, how it will impact their children. So I would love through that lens for you to share to give us a, your crystal ball vision of where are we and where are we going with AI and wellness? Yeah, so what's interesting is there are so many things that have come together in the last 10 years with the, a number of different fields. So when you say AI, it's not just some plug-in tool, it's, it's literally affecting a bunch of disparate categories. So in the past 10 years, you've had the rise of molecular testing platforms. You've also had what are called CRISPRs, which is the ability to begin editing genes, things like that. I'd love you just to explain that because that to me is the most exciting aspect of medicine uh, and truly revolutionary. And it's getting better and better, right? Yeah. So if you think about it, our master plan is our genetic code, right? And we each are super unique, even though there's eight or 8 billion of us on the planet right now. And there's infinite variation. So within that, let's say 98% is good. And there are a couple of things that maybe we all have our kryptonite, just to borrow the Superman analogy, where 
maybe through the course of life for most people, it never kind of surfaces, but maybe there's this combination of unique environment or, or diet or anything like that, where all of a sudden it exploit that weakness. And so what if you could edit that? Maybe it's the same as if it was a house, you'd replace a board Absolutely. and not have the whole house fall, fall down because the board rotted. So that, that's kind of a simple analogy on that. So imagine being able to edit your master architecture. And we can, right? Well, you're starting to have that in limited ways. Just with Jennifer Doudna won the Nobel Prize for her CRISPR work. And you have a number of companies in the last 10 years that have formed on that. But literally the next decade is going to be the golden age for figuring out these discoveries and then making them mass scale so that they're, they become cheaply available. So a lot of that has required a lot of computational value and power to be able to figure all this out because just the complex interrelationship between all these different variables is really far beyond the human comprehension and capability of doing it. It would just take forever. So the so role of us, AI is to take this mass of information from multiple data points and then do the analysis in a in a way and in a speed and in multiple variations that human couldn't. Yeah. You literally think about it. You you have this incredibly fast clock speed that allows you to all of a sudden compute all these different variations and potentialities. And it would just take us forever to do that. But they can do a massive amount of pattern matching and recognition. In fact, quietly, one of the very first big AI victories last decade was this ability to begin mapping out all the proteins in the body. Because and I understand that this is now being made available publicly for everyone. That's one of the the um, you know wonderful things about the uh, health and wellness community and the medical community is that some of this research is is then made available. Is that correct? Yeah, it's starting to become available. It's still very limited, but where the CRISPR stuff we're we're not quite doing, but we're they're kind of like a, a really friendly next door neighbor, right? So. For us, uh, what we're doing is about, so I had a diagnostic company 10 years ago, and uh, it became fairly well known. It was Wellness FX. And for three years I had, it was in the Valley. And so we were all part of this quantified self kind of guerrilla movement. And we got going. And for a while, I was getting tested once a month with the, the full blood diagnostic platform, about 250 biomarkers. So I really got to see how my biology worked. And I would take a test and I'd say, all right, if I took this supplement, I wonder what it would do. And by the time I was done 36 months later, I knew my recipe for life. And then I sold the company. And for whatever reason, I never tested myself again until uh, about a year and a half ago. I said, all right, I wonder what's up. So I went over and got an extensive same panel. And I discovered all my markers were in the green. And I'm in my 60s. So generally, you start to fall apart a little bit. And I went, wow, that, that really had some staying power. So I did kind of crack my own code. But then I wow, that's was so going to do this, this company, this molecular testing company. And I can explain why it's so transformationally different than traditional blood diagnostics. And so I had the test run. So I had a little bit of the worry in the back of my mind of, okay, what hidden landmines are they going to discover with this deeper dive into your molecules, right? And so I got my results back and we test 26 biological categories right now. 
and we so do this it is with the, the work you're doing with molecular molecular yeah that your new company yeah our, our test assay uh runs 250 biomarkers but instead of doing say a single biomarker for like here's your glucose it will take families of these markers and analyze the complex mathematical relationships between them to say output you have a 98% risk for Alzheimer's or only a 2% risk or, you know, all these things can be quantified now. So I was kind of apprehensive wondering, all right, yeah, I had kind of old style by blood diagnostics and, and I probably one of the most tested humans in the world at the time, but what's going on? I love this. You're so kind of like a NASA astronaut. Like they know everything <laughs> about you. They know what happens when you take, you know, a drop of glucose. They know what happens when, you know, there's too much MSG in your Chinese food, like, Wow. Yeah. So I get the results back. And first of all, good news, because it was a little apprehensive. Uh, all 26 were what we call in the green. So that's good. My lowest score, because given us multiple, multiple biomarkers, we also want to make it really approachable for the average person. So we do it on a zero to 100 score because we all grow up being graded zero to 100, right? True, true. And we instantly know what that score means. So in dietary health, I got a 78. And that was my lowest score. And that was in the green. And, and I can imagine a you're a super achiever. So 78 did not sit well with you. I, I was, you totally nailed me. Uh, I was unhappy. I, I double clicked and I started looking at, all right, what marker is the offending one within that cluster? But uh, and what can I do for it? But then all my other ones went up from there. And my average score across all 26 categories was um, 92.5. So Bravo. I'm so, clapping for you. <laughs> yeah. But I'm I'm happy because uh for myself, yes, but I'm also happy because it means that anybody, if they had the right tools, could do that. Right. So that that's that was the the key point for me there. I think what you've touched on is is what's really beautiful about where we're headed with this and, and for the people who are willing to embrace it and, and bring it in, is that we're going to go from uh, reactive uh, medicine to proactive medicine, and uh, I've I'm a massive proponent of what I call knowing your own dashboard. So, um, and I always talk about this. I, I encourage my listeners to have full blood panels, full gut health checks, DNA testing, any scans that are available, um, because we spend so much time buffing and puffing the outside and knowing all sorts of crazy things about, you know, what outfit suits us, what music we like to listen to. And yet we don't know the most fundamental things about how we operate as an organism. And there is, there is a lot of diagnostic testing available. And once you have that blueprint of your, um, you know, operating system, as for lack of a better word, you can make modifications. And those modifications yield amazing dividends quite quickly. So uh, for me, the hormone panel testing revealed so much about myself. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, my DNA testing was was extremely profound in the way that I made some adjustments. I, you know, I was lucky enough to get a great um, score uh, when I had my DNA test results, but it also showed me what I'm predisposed to in other things, and that made that me kind curious. Of, where are those weaknesses, right? That yeah. made me curious. And mm -hmm. my daughter just turned 13 and I'll be doing a DNA swab 
of her. I, w- I wanted to wait till she was 13. I won't share the results with her, but I think it will help me parent better. It will help me feed her better. It will help me uh, support her well-being and growth better, make better decisions around the house in the way that I'm nourishing her, um, the way that, you know, her sleep and rest and sport is set up. So I think, you know, that's kind of rudimentary. What you're talking about is that next level up. And are you saying that what you're doing is available to regular um, people? Soon to be. So one of the other things that happened being part of the, the Silicon Valley kind of quantified self movement in the early part of last decade is that we were going to all these meetups and talking about what we knew. And it was a very small group. And but I also noticed that's when you started getting kind of the not to talk badly, but the kind of tech bro-ish. Uh, I'm so profoundly important to the world. I need to make sure I've tested so I can keep myself around for everything. There's a little bit of stigma around that. I totally agree. Um, and just the over testing. And I've always thought, why, why can't we make that democratize it and make it just part of everybody's life versus somebody can maybe spend a hundred to 200,000 a year. Uh, some guys do up to a couple million dollars a year. Absolutely. Um, and it sucks down excess healthcare and resources when, if you had a more efficient way of doing it, um, you could do that. So what if you had a testing chip, which, you know, we have 250 markers right now, 26 categories. And then the way the pace of the science is going, uh, our system works. We have this massive uh, machine learning AI system that does knowledge management. It sits on top of all of the major scientific and medical publications and journals. And it vacuums those up. And so right now there's about a million credible scientific publications of data every year. And it's beyond human comprehension to vacuum that up and then make sense of it. Uh, But our apparatus, our knowledge management does that. And what it does is it looks for markers that are coming out of say proteomics research or metabolomics or genomics. And it bubbles up the most credible markers we take those and we see if we can replicate them on our testing assay, which we run on a, a well-qualified mass spectrometry uh, device, and we get the output from that. So that part is is start, is really well understood, but the costs are coming way down. That used to be tens of thousands of dollars to do, and now uh, within the next year, it'll be sub $100. So wow, that's extraordinary. Uh, like, can I just interject here? Yeah. The the pushback that I get when I espouse all mm-hmm. of this testing and how much I love knowing this about myself, the pushback that I almost always get is what you know about yourself, big pharma knows about you or big tech knows about you. And aren't you uncomfortable with that level of information that can then be married up with your other information and therefore you have zero privacy, not from a cellular level, much less to a data information level. So, and, you know, we've seen the nightmare of, is it Thernos? What was the Elizabeth? Yeah, uh, Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> Holmes, yeah. I, my analogy of, of Elizabeth is that uh, she actually was a contemporary of mine with my company at the same time. Wow. And I could I could actually never figure her out. And I, I used to get, I'd go into meetings, they go, well, Elizabeth has uh, figured it out, so we're not going to finance you. So <gasps> it, it was actually deeply personal to me because I had such a hard time raising money and it is what forced me to sell my company actually. You're kidding um, me. No, oh. but uh, I, I knew a lot of people like the people who had the patents on microfluidics at the time 
which is what she was doing. And I go talk to her. I said, so how is it she can do all this stuff? I thought you had these patents. They're like, there's no way. <laughs> so um, I, I and, and I don't want to be one of those people who says I knew it all along, but I, I was always deeply suspicious because it didn't add up, but it did distort the market. Well, it's so, distorted the market and it's distorted, mm-hmm. um, you know, any any time there's something that people are inherently suspicious or uh, nervous about and then they get proof that their suspicions were founded. It. Yeah. So I, I can understand. So you want to know that. my analogy of Elizabeth Holmes when I get it? Because right now I'm out raising my next round of capital for this company. And that always comes up because we're literally a small tube of blood. Um, that is pretty soon going to go to just a disc that you put on your arm because we've gotten the amount we need down to such a little amount. And they'll say, well, that's Elizabeth Holmes. And I say, well, think of it as Elizabeth Holmes if she if wasn't committing fraud <laughs> and she had science. Um, but it's kind of like uh, somebody in a business category built on this magnificent hill, a fantastic mansion, and it's haunted. And so we're the first ones to have the courage to go knock on the door and go walk back in the mansion. So this is a perfectly good place. We've exercised the demons and we're ready to occupy it so everybody else can use it. So well, um, I love that's kind of how we see that. Because I have to say, you know, in in watching that trajectory, it, it's, it was so compelling. Like as a consumer, I like to call myself a citizen scientist. Mm-hmm. My father yeah. is a scientist, but I am a citizen scientist. And I'm deeply curious about this evolution. And, um, you know, my entire show is founded on the concept of being curious about the cellular, uh, the the science of cellular wellness. Yeah. So to me, what, what you're developing is my dream state. Like I would love nothing more than to be able to purchase this disc for under $100, to know more about my cellular health, and then to be able to make informed, deeply personalized decisions about the supplements I take, the sleep I have, the mm-hmm. diet that I follow, the amount of water that I drink. And so I was really invested in that other business being a success. And it was... And it's disappointing when it doesn't happen. I was about right? to say, it was yeah. hugely disappointing. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was a woman. So, <laughs> so going back to your other question, though, there, so there's that. So the opportunity is there, right? Uh, it's just the market and the scale and everything had to catch up. But on the uh, area that you bring up, which I call uh, consent management. So I used to work at an insurance company. For I, After I sold my company, I went to work for a big traditional insurance company because I wanted to figure out how traditional healthcare worked. And I learned a lot there. But one of the things I did is I ran a, a consumer platform for about 2 million consumers. And we were really having to deal with uh, data accounts. And so my personal uh, philosophy that I brought over from that experience is that your data should belong to you and you should have a very robust account or personal health record that actually manages your consents because data is a really interesting thing for consumers and healthcare or some data, if you're an org, if you want to contact them or transfer the data for the consumer, you have to get permission every single time. Some data has like every six months uh, you need permission, but otherwise you could just do back and forth. And some of it's evergreen, meaning once you have the permission, you can do consent management with the consumer and their account. So these companies get very, it's very complex and there's no commercial software available. 
But what we have uh, set up in our philosophy is this, that we're on the consumer side. So when you buy your test, even if let's say your employer in the US uh, provides your healthcare, your data belongs to you and they're not allowed to look at it. If you leave and go somewhere else, it's portable. If you ever say, I want it destroyed, we'll destroy it. So that's something uh, we're, because we're invested in basically becoming the data repository for all these different accounts, because we want people to get tested every year. We think they should, because it's the longitudinal data that gets super valuable. So that's kind of our philosophy. As far as the, um, the piece of science is on our side. So we're at 250, our newest assay uh, that's coming up, you can think of it almost like a new microchip with more capacity, is gonna have over 800 uh, proteomes and metabol uh, uh, proteins and metabolites on it. And then next year we have another thousand that are coming up through discovery. Because when we vacuum up all that literature, the way we decide if it's, it, if it's credible or not, we actually go see if we can put it on our test plate and replicate the result from the independent scientific research. If it passes that test, that's how it makes it on our chip. So, uh, so that's I'm, the I'm testing just platform. Play, I, uh, as a citizen scientist, I am yeah. like the, everything that you're saying excites me so much. And I'm, you know, what you're saying is so interesting because you're saying right now we've got um, 850, you said, is that correct? Uh, we have 250, but uh, 250. within... Within the next six months, because we're yeah, we so the numbers that you're saying, yeah. the time frames are so short. So, as a mother, I'm thinking, my goodness, Impressed. by the time my daughter is old enough, the body of uh, information that you'll be able to run the data points along is is just fantastical. But I, again, on the point of um, data security, I'm being mm -hmm. devil's advocate because it is still such a big. Uh, the, uh, I guess, mountain for uh, technology companies and biotech in particular to, to climb over. In Australia, our largest health fund had a data breach and this happened last year. So we had two major data breaches in Australia last year. One was uh, our second biggest telco and the second one was our number one private health insurer. And the people who stole the data as part of their you know, strategies to uh, ransom, um, mm -hmm. they published highly sensitive materials on the internet. They published records of women who'd had terminations. And that, as you can imagine, just like the the emotional Hugely revolt, invasive. Hugely yes. invasive and problematic because you, you expect Australia's largest insurer and private insurer to or largest telco, second largest telco to have a, a a method, a methodology to protect our data. And similar to what you say, just as your technology is fast moving, so is hacking technology. So mm -hmm. again, I want to come back to um, this point. Once you democratize uh, the technology, which is what your company is really running toward, which is wonderful. Um, do you think that we have to have a slightly more relaxed view of our biodata security so that we get the benefit of being able to get the data? Is that is that part of what we have to kind of let go of? Well, and I I grew up reading science fiction, so I always and I for some dark reason always liked the dystopian novels. So the uh 
so I always try to, even though I'm naturally optimistic, I also always have a, a dystopian hat I put on and try to figure out, all right, what could go wrong? And so, first of all, uh, anybody, no matter how good their intentions or their capabilities or how, how much resource they put into something, any org can have a data breach. And so um, that that's just a fact of life, but uh, making sure you take all the steps you can to make sure that doesn't happen is the best you can do, right? And do you think now, that that's going to be like the biggest part of your marketing pitch? Because I think what you've developed as a scientific um, innovation, everyone wants. Like, I mean, there, yeah. there'd be many people who, who you'd be hard-pressed not to want to know that. And help well, and, and it's going to be your cornerstone data because there's this thing called um, this movement. It's a huge market. It's called real-world data that is coming out. And so if you have cornerstone data, that's data that when it comes in, it almost becomes like the strategic crossroad that activates, in this case, all the other data sets. So let's say that you have been going to a neurology clinic for years and you have your claims for your insurance. You also have maybe your doctor notes uh, observing you. Um, and then maybe you've had imaging to um, you know, check neurological progress. And then all of a sudden you have dropped in there our proteome metabolome test. It actually shows, you know, all the other data you have is what's been observed or other means, whereas this shows what's actually been happening over time at the molecular level, right? And then you start cross-correlating all of those uh, data points. You're going to get this really robust model. And so we're very open source too. So if you have other data scattered around, silo data is not useful. If you can bring it all together, you get a much better picture. So we're not arrogant enough to believe that our data set's the only one. There's going to be a lot of other useful data sets that if they're orphans, they're not going to be as useful. But when paired up with ours, supremely useful. So then you get back to the security question, right, is, boy, I just consolidated all my data. So it's great because it's consolidated, but it's bad because it's consolidated, right? Yeah. So you're trying to sort that out. and. There's a couple of things that, that we're working on that the company's actually worked on for a while. Um, there's a really good, uh, I'd say, uh, crypto uh, blockchain uh, research group at UBC in, in British Columbia that's been working on this for years. So we actually have a, uh, we're going to base our consumer account, uh, probably, I'm not saying it's guaranteed, but that everybody would have a blockchain account. And, you know, it gets a lot of bad news, right? But the, the great thing that I like about a decentralized uh, ledger like that is that it actually helps you manage your permissions. And I, we just got done mentioning consent management about data, uh, healthcare data, and that's the biggest blocker, and that causes the most breach. So if you have a, an individual account controlled by somebody that uh, seamlessly controls the consents as an individual, that at least ups the security a lot more. So I think there's a couple creative technical solutions you can take. And then you just have to have a culture of what is your brand as a company. And so for me, the brand is that we have to always be on the side of the consumer. We always individually re represent the, the individual and not the organization. And even if, let's say, a company comes to us and says, hey, I have a thousand employees. I want to give you um, give them your product as an individual benefit, because if they all get tested, we can look at the overall model 
and help make better decisions about what benefits to give the group, but not peek at the uh, individuals. So even if we got paid for it, we're always going to have in our consent documents that the data belongs to the individual and you can't talk directly to, say, the employee. So yes. if you want to direct resources to them, you have to go through us or some other trusted group like a doctor. So, um, so there's you, you got to do both the technical and the, the structural. So I saw recently, I think it was as recently as last week, that Viome um, uh, in uh, another round mm -hmm. of raising, and they, they were able to raise, uh, I think it was 85 million US. Um, I think it's yeah. the third round. So, and they just do gut microbiome testing. Um, it's a test that I actually offer on our virtual clinic uh, alongside mm -hmm. um, pathology tests and DNA tests. And so I, I'm imagining for the field that you're in, whilst, you know, there were some setbacks from uh, previous uh, entrepreneurs entering the field, it is a robust area of investment because predictive health must be an enormous cost saving to said um, health insurance companies. And in, yeah. you know, when you look at countries like America, where healthcare is so expensive, um, surely there's a, an upside for insurance companies and providers of healthcare to invest in this precursor technology, which helps prevent. Yeah, can, I, can I give you a stat? I lead off some of my investor presentations. Yes. Um, there's this fantastic study, and I boiled it down, is that in the next 12 months, 3% of our population will develop significant illness, unbeknownst to us right now, and make up 25% of our total national health expenditures. So if you're talking about a a $4.4 trillion healthcare economy in the U.S., that's $1.1 trillion is going to be caused, you know, is going to be, uh, the cost is going to happen from 3% of the people. And we don't know who they are just yet, but we will in the next 12 months. So what if you could move upstream and go from being symptomatic to pre-symptomatic? Because let's think, face it, when you see a symptom or when a you don't feel well or something like that, by the time you're able to notice something on most conditions, it means that you've let it go on for longer than it should have. And if you've caught it before, so we have a, do you want to hear our biggest win from last year with one of our customers? Really? I, I, and in fact, I was going to ask you, can you personalize it away from big data to some real human stories? Because I think that's when it becomes, when technology becomes really interesting because right. when you can try it on as a, as a human. Yeah. So I, 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 I love uh, the humanity of, of just uh, personal journeys through healthcare. Uh, they're so interesting. So our big win last year is we have a longtime subscriber. She's been super diligent about getting her test every year and follows all of the, because we provide recommendations when you get your results back because it's, it's such complex data. It won't be fair. Oh my goodness. Uh, that's like, that's yeah. wonderful. And that's, that Here's was actually one of my other questions. Yeah. So, so she's been good about that. And our markers look great. So on her last most recent test last year, she came back and her signature was completely off. And when we ran it, she had a high predictive risk for pancreatic cancer. And so we're not doctors. So we uh, 
enabled her to go talk to her doctor who was good and immediately ordered imaging and came back because we said, you know, this is a signature for pancreatic cancer, we're pretty sure. Came back, she had three small lesions on her pancreas, barely noticeable. And impossible to have detected otherwise, right? Well, and that's a a mass cancer. It's a death sentence. Usually if you hear you have pancreatic cancer, it's followed by, and go home and figure out how to enjoy the last three months of your life. So at stage one, you could go in and excise the three little lesions um, with laparoscopic and no chemo or radiation or anything like that. And so she had that done earlier this year. And we just had her test, uh, rerun her test to see if her markers had receded back to normal values like before. And they came back uh, completely clean. Every single uh, protein and metabolite had re- returned to where they were before. Jim, and can so I ask you a question about, with, yeah. with regards to that particular case study? Mm-hmm. Does your um, platform send the alert to your client, to your patient? Is it, or is it that I would be reading my report and say, oh, that looks off? Or is it that you, you've you collected my data points and if something looks awry, um, I'll get an email or an alert? So there's two things that we all deal with as healthcare consumers. You're thinking, okay, I'm tackling all my health and wellness things. And, oh, look, I got more in the green here. And uh, I'm able to to lift more weights because I'm stronger or this and that. And then life happens, right? There's always that one landmine or something that periodically hits us, uh, and that's serious illness. And so in the case of um, the woman I was just talking about, she had been doing everything right, and she just happened to have a cancer develop, and we detected it at the molecular level. So on the health and wellness stuff, she works with her health and wellness coach that we tee up that's trained in our, our system and all that. But then when something clinical comes up like that, then we have to surface that to her and say, you need to go talk to your primary care doctor, because we also want to enable a really productive conversation. But that's my question. How is this communicated? Is this communicated as an alert or is it a one-on-one conversation? How are you managing? It's a one-on-one. I don't like to, like on a case of a cancer, sending, uh, um, uh, hey, by the way, your latest report shows that you have... uh, a high predictive risk for pancreatic cancer. Uh, so on clinical, it has to be more of a one-on-one consultation. And so again, going back to my initial question, mm-hmm. if I'm having the monthly testing uh, with on your platform or um, yearly testing, whatever uh, the protocol yeah. is, and something is detected that is outside of the wellness range and, and goes into disease detection. Yeah, it's kind of, all right, we're now, we need to talk to a clinician. Right. Uh, so so who picks that up? Your team picks that up in the Yeah, dark so when the, when the, because the, it's complex, multiple markers. Exactly. And they all, and every condition, there's 8,000 conditions known to man, right? So each one has a unique signature. So you need to be able to um, say, here's the signature. Um, And then you have the conversation with the consumer. And by the way, you you should go talk to a clinician because we're not doctors. Perfect. Uh, So I just wanted to understand the process. No, it's super important because you have this duality. It's kind of like uh, using the house analysis again, uh, analogy again. Uh, I take care of the house. I make sure it always gets painted tended to and all that, but occasionally some severe damage happens and I have to go get a professional. 
uh, you know, we enable you to do both activities. You tend to your health and wellness activities and anything serious comes up, we make sure you're set up to have the best possible conversation with a qualified physician that you can. Uh, now we have, we're small enough that we haven't had the instance where somebody says, I don't have a doctor, uh, because then you, you think of all the outcomes on that. It's like, okay, do we help them find a doctor or, you know, this and that, but that would be the next phase of our development. So going back to the, um, I guess the application of this mm -hmm. technology and where we're going with AI. When you were talking before about your dystopian taste in books when you were a teen, I was thinking like when I was little, um, the Jetsons were like one of my favorite, um, you know, cartoons. That's very utopian. Exactly. That's what I was about to say. So, but it's funny, so many of the things that were characterized as fantasy in that show in my lifetime, and uh, have come to pass as the absolute norm, like the absolute norm. Yeah. So in a way, I am quite optimistic because I think if we can imagine it, we can create it. And and I guess that's what your company has done. You've imagined a, a world where, you know, this concept is a reality and it's useful and it's democratised. And then you've gone backwards because you are tech people. You've gone, okay, well, if that's the goal, you know, if that's the moonshot, how do we get there? So th that's super exciting and and comforting to know. But what I'm interested in now, knowing what you've developed and what you're on the brink of providing potentially to anyone who who can afford it and can get to it, is what will come next? I mean, if you had your crystal ball or the, you were writing a Jetsons episode, what would be your nirvana in terms of um, the application of AI in med medicine? Well, I think continuing our current model of bubbling up when credible research discoveries happen of new markers, making sure that we're not remiss and in finding those and making sure our system surfaces, these are the, the best new batch and then go put in and see if they we can replicate it and then add it to our, our assay and our array. And then the second thing is the output of all of that data is what the what we call the risk signature. And we're getting to an era of holistic approach to, to medicine. So I'll, I'll give an analogy of another client of ours who she has been a stabilized diabetic for years. Uh, has done a good job, but has recently in the last year been, her situation has accelerated and it's been uh, unfortunately deteriorating. So she, with diabetes, if you become advanced on that, you can almost bet there's a number of comorbidities coming up, whether it's COPD or PVD or CVD. What are they, uh, sorry? Disease. Oh, uh, peripheral vascular disease, uh, cardiovascular yes, yes. Uh, disease. Uh, chronic pulmonary, uh, obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, kidney disease. So there's probably a dozen different things that uh, arise off of a uh, out-of-control diabetic. But right now the system just says you're a diabetic, Yes. right? So the reason why, um, and this is a long answer, is why a multi-marker mo model and mapping out how each one's interacting with each other. You could say that um, this woman is advancing in her diabetes, 
and cure her emerging comorbidities. So we should actually make sure we're treating both wow. so that permanent damage doesn't occur versus just saying, oh, her diabetes is getting under control. I wonder what's coming up with her. Um, so I think you can get way ahead of the game. And the multi-marker part of life is different than the single marker approach that medicine's had in the 20th century. And so just to talk about why it's such a different system, our regulatory path, uh, we have to, we're probably going to get approved as a de novo class two medical device uh, for predicting risk, the data output, because it's novel. But then we got to figure out how do we get uh, reimbursed for it um, in the healthcare system. Right? That's what I was going to ask you. Surely the, um, so you know, they, the insurance. They diagnostic markers now, but they pay very little money for screening. Right. So all the incentives are to develop things that detect uh, manifestation of illness versus moving upstream to kind of molecular formation of illness, which, you know, in some cases could fi be five or 10 years in advance of that. So you got to think about how does the system change? For example, maybe um, my aspiration is that everybody says, all right, twice a year, I just get my test done and it's fast and it's easy. And it tells me that I'm tracking on my health and wellness goals. And it picks up any dreaded early formation of disease to nip it right in the bud before it happens. And the system's set up for that. And then just continuing along my dystopian frame of mind on that one, I think, well, what could go wrong with that? Well, what if you did that and the system paid for all the, the like, here's your twice yearly, is free because it makes sense. But you discover early serious disease and you're part of a class of people who doesn't have good healthcare coverage. That could be pretty frustrating because you, like, let's say you're in a system. You know it's coming. Yeah, and they ration care. Like they say, well, you can't see a specialist for two years. And the other thing uh, that has happened yeah. in Australia with um, DNA testing and pre-screening is that your health insurer says you have a predisposition uh, to this disease. Uh -huh. Therefore, we're not going to insure you. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think you have to have, uh, again, that's why the data and the control of the consumer output in an account has to be with an entity whose loyalty and trust is with the consumer. But if you have to do an honest and full disclosure and say, for example, I had my pre-screening and it showed very high propen uh, you know, likelihood of uh, genetic uh, predisposition to, say, um, bowel cancer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I have an obligation, if I have that test and I have that result, there's a legal obligation for me to disclose that to my insurer at the time of insurance, whether it's life insurance or health insurance. And if they can prove that I had a DNA test or I had diagnostics that flagged this before it manifested and I took out health insurance, they have the right to deny my insurance. So, th so that, that's another... You, You've done a good job of adding to my dystopian list, right? <laughs> but it's <laughs> but, happening. But it's real. I, but I do, I do have an answer to that, actually. So do you know why? Um, do you know why I like protein, uh, proteins, and metabolites more than I do, uh, uh, you know, genes? So, so genes are possibility, and so some estimates say that fifteen percent of what happens to you in life is based on your genes, yes. and thirty-five percent is access to healthcare. And then 50% is individual decisions and circumstances. Epigenetics, right? yeah. So that means that the pre-existing genetic genes are possibility. They're not fate. 
I love that. And that's, so I love that pro- you've highlighted this. Protein expression is function. They're the players. That's what's going on right now. And then the metabolome is the readout from all your cell functions. So those two together are what's going on. But if you're doing it early, like the pancreatic cancer example, then, you know, she, sure, she had bad markers there, right? Based, they were going in the wrong direction, but it was so early, you could address it. And as soon as it was addressed, the markers went back to a baseline level. So if I were talking to the insurance company and counteract, you know, countering their argument, so, okay, well, so what you're saying is you just want to make sure that somebody is at a, a good level of their markers. And if they get out of whack temporarily, we discover early and deal with it. And if it regresses, then everybody's good, right? So that, that's oh, how, I think uh, I, I'm yeah. on your side. But what I'm saying is that that will that responsibility and I guess that mountain climb will be in your hands because, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're the you're the developers, you're the visionary. Uh, and then we have to get everyone else to come up under us. And, you know, through these conversations, uh, through the case studies where you know, every single person's life matters. And I I love that you were able to like pinpoint this one woman's life because that one woman's life is a great story. It's, and I'm sure there's many, many, many examples that you have. But I would love to. So if you ask me what I want the company to look like in 10 years, uh, I would love to have a hundred million people trusted me with an account. They get tested twice a year. And we have these incredibly rich, long run profiles because they all become risk patterns that we can then say more quickly, hey, this risk pattern matches this one over here. And then we begin comparing treatments and all that. And we have this flywheel getting more and more efficient about uh, detection and saying, here's what a really subtle complex risk profile looks like. Here's what works with this one. You know, all those things. So we're all a wealth of data. And so we have a, a common good that we should be doing if we had safe mechanisms that um, our pattern added together, say, you know, 10 are great, a thousand better, a million, fantastic, you know, a hundred million, tremendous. So all all that is, uh, I think, how you change uh, how healthcare is. And that sounds kind of optimistic and big, but addressing like scale, can you make it progressively cheaper? Can you save the system money and prove that it's valuable? All those things are, are elements you have to address to kind of you know, tilt towards more of a, a predictive preventive future versus one that kind of sits around and, and fatalistic waits around for the next, uh, you know, hammer to drop. That was like one of the most optimistic conversations I've had about cellular wellness in a long time. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Jim. I love being able to uh, bring visionaries such as yourself who who are about to, you know, completely change the landscape of how we view. Uh, our our wellness and the possibilities for uh, optimizing not just longevity but also our um, health span Um, and I think that the health span conversation is actually the most interesting part of the the conversation when it comes to optimizing your health because who wants to be old and sick you you only want to live longer if you're functioning well and you you can enjoy your life and um, I'm so excited and fascinated and I would love to you know, I would love for us to have this conversation in a year's time and to see what molecular you 
has been able to achieve in this fast moving space. So watch this space. I would really, really um, love the opportunity of having you back in a year's time and see where we, how far you've come. First of all, I'd love to come back and it was delightful to, to talk with you, but also by extension with your audience. So uh, thank you. It was a privilege. Thank you so much. And thanks for staying up late um, to chat to me here in Australia. I appreciate it. No worries at all. Have a great day. Ageless by Rescue is brought to you by Rescue Me Academy, Reignite Your Relationship course. Love your relationship, but miss the early days? You're not alone. This course will teach you how to identify your issues, stop the fighting, find what you need to be happy, re-spark intimacy, and keep the lines of communication open. Join us at rescuemeacademy.com.au to learn more about the program and to download your first free lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that.